Welcome to another episode of Civic Cipher. I am your host, Ramses Ja. They call me Q Ward most of the time, except some people call me Quentin, and then some people call me Quentin, but my name is Quentin, so then I just prefer Q. <laughs> I hope that makes sense to everybody. Hey man, Q Ward, that works around here. I'm not mad at it. Um, and we are back again to discuss some very important goings on uh, through the lens of black and brown folks in this country. Um, that's what we do here on Civic Cipher. Uh, so be sure to stick around because we got a lot in store for you, not the least of which is an opportunity for us to stand in solidarity with our, uh, what's the word I want to use, um, disabled perhaps, brothers and sisters. Um, also, we're going to be uh, talking a bit about children and how they develop their views on race and what can be done about that and where critical race theory fits into that uh, narrative. We're also going to talk about a couple of other things, not the least of which is an interesting Baba segment that has become a better ally um, with some great advice on how you can stand um, in support of your uh, brothers and sisters as they interact with the police. Um, and uh, a lot more besides that. So plenty to stick around for uh, for today's show. And um, first, we want to start off with something that we like to call Ebony Excellence. Uh, is that good with you, Q? Yes, sir. So I'll jump in here. All I do is win, 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 no matter what. Um, for those who don't know, there is a NASCAR driver by the name of Bubba Wallace. And Bubba is half black, half white. But around here, we call that black. Um, and he's actually really good. He's from a team that is owned by Michael Jordan. So Jordan is one of the like early investors. And recently, he became the second black person um, to win the Cup Series since 1963. That's NASCAR's like premier race. Um, and the first person was Hall of Fame driver Wendell Scott. Um, but uh, again, making history, you know, moving, you know, things forward. And of course, we know NASCAR is really um, primarily, you know, there are Caucasian people that, you know, race in NASCAR. And so for Bubba Wallace, not only to be able to participate, um, get a lot of support. I don't, I don't know if you remember Q, but might have been last year we did a story about um someone finding a noose in his garage which turned out to just be um something that was left over from the year prior so it wasn't what they thought it was thank god but hold um, on hold on second so the way that that was reported people tried to make it seem as if he was mistaken he was not it was a noose. There was yeah. a noose. Definitely a noose. It's very, very important to point that part yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. That part is true. want to say that, you know, maybe it wasn't for him or all these other things. Right. It was a noose. It was definitely that. And it's and, not and like that's the that. only way you can tie a rope to pull a garage down. So yeah. I don't want to completely pretend like that had nothing to do with him like they did. No, no, you're absolutely right. But, you know, in terms of Ebony Excellence, he's persevered. Uh, he's been well supported by uh, the other NASCAR drivers, and um, you know now he's the champion. So kudos to Bubba Wallace. 
Um, and, and Rams is just to point out, not just the second since 1963, but the second ever. Ever, right. Right? So Wendell Scott was the first ever. And he didn't even get his, I think his family didn't even get his trophy until uh, posthumously. Like, I think after he passed away, they finally got the trophy to his family because it was some type of... Uh, I know they what didn't it was. let him. Yeah, they didn't let him win that easily. Yeah, I, know, I think they I know even made him drive a couple extra laps. <laughs> like, let's just make sure he won like some type of controversy. Uh, so, you know, shouts out to Bubba Wallace and shout out to the people who are trying to discount the way that he won. NASCAR drivers win, win races that aren't finished due to weather all the time. So now that he's done it, they want to try to discount it. So. Shouts to Bubba Wallace, man. Yeah, that we're going to be the ones to say shout out to Bubba Wallace if no one else. So hats off. Um, and now more into real news. Um, now, here's something that I have to remind all of our listeners of, and that's that there is a tremendous amount of news stories that we have to go through every week. And we have to whittle it down into things that we feel are important um, and, you know, help us have the conversations that I, I think will lead to us having stronger relationships with, it, with each other as brothers and sisters in this country. Um, with that said, we leave so much. There's so many stories that I really, really absolutely feel like I need to tell. There's so many things that I need to give perspective to and and you know we need to understand it together um we we need to have our therapy together whatever it is and because of the way time works we're just not able to do that and this week's topics you know they're very difficult to choose but you know i recognize that this week and next week we are going to want to stand as much in solidarity with um brothers and sisters who don't necessarily look like us or have the same walk as us, but certainly have the same challenges. And it's about, we're about due to share the space again. And so this is one such story. Um, so this comes from Vice, you know, a lot of this I took directly from Vice, but this will help me paint the picture for you. Um, when Brady Mystic, a deaf man living in Idaho Springs, Colorado, was pulled over by local police one night in 2019, he tried to signal that he couldn't hear officers' commands, but the cops on the scene allegedly misinterpreted his sign language as disrespect, tased him multiple times, and slammed him to the ground. Ultimately, Mystic spent four months in jail where he was allegedly denied an interpreter before all charges against him were dropped. Two years after the September 2019 encounter, Mystic is now suing the two officers from the Idaho Springs Police Department, the city, and the County Board of Commissioners for use of excessive force, failing to recognize that he had a disability and wrongfully incarcerating him. Mr. Mystic cried out saying, no ears, the lawsuit reads. Defendant Summers ignore, ignored Mr. Mystic's plea and then tased Mr. Mystic a second time. Defendants knew or should have known Mr. Mystic's lack of speech, hand gestures, and or thick-tongued articulation of words, no ears, that he was deaf and could not hear or understand the officers. Okay, I want to stop right there. Um, I've seen the video for this one. And 
again, the reason I chose this is because there's a lot of videos that I had to sift through, a lot of heartbreaking videos of people losing their life um, at the hands of the police. And we talk about the police a lot on this show. But this video was clear, and I think it was necessary to help tell the stories of the other videos and the other stories that I can't tell. This one is a little bit more all-encompassing. And this is a person who, for all intents and purposes, was born with a strike against him. This man cannot hear, or maybe he wasn't born that way, but otherwise he's not able to hear the way that most of us are. Um, and the video, you know, he gets out of the car. Um, he, well, he's followed by the police officers, you know, he pulls over and, you know, goes where he's going. Um, he gets out of the car and approaches the police vehicle. Um, and the police are yelling at him, screaming. And then they, you know, start to get physical as they jump out of the car and so forth. And he's yelling and screaming. You can hear that he's, he doesn't know what's going on. Um, and there's a very violent and, uh, emboldened reaction from the police. They just feel like they can do whatever they want to do, especially this officer Summers. Um, there was a male officer and a, and a female officer. And to her credit, the female officer had a small amount more restraint, um, and we'll see as we read a little bit further that this officer Summers um, had gotten in trouble before for, I think, assaulting uh, or a brutal arrest of a 75-year-old man. Um, and uh, he was fired prior to this even becoming a lawsuit. So this guy has a history of being really violent with people where that's not necessary. But um, back to the video. Um, what happens and and we can see it you know this is body cam footage so this is what the officers are seeing or dash cam footage um we can see that he's walking up to the car to investigate and he says that later on he he says you know i got out of the car and i went to see what was happening you know what was going on on the other side of this thing he didn't think it was for him and um the officers grabbed him and and then in the video of course they slam his head on the on the concrete and then they take him to jail and he's in jail for four months. Um, and I believe it was something about maybe he didn't come to a full stop at a stop sign or whatever the case was. Some, some, some reason they had originally engaged him. But, I'm so um, glad you said that very benign yeah. reason for this whole arrest situation in the first place was a stop sign. Exactly. It was, it was something like that. It wasn't a high speech. It wasn't, they weren't looking for a robbery suspect or anything like that. It was just people living their lives the way they normally do. They happen to catch this and, you know, this man gets assaulted and then imprisoned um, and then denied an interpreter. So what I wanted to talk about is this ready, fire, aim mentality that we see a lot with the police. And it's protected by this thin layer of, I was, I feared for my life. And, you know, I, I'm, I try to be fair. I try to be fair. Q, I know that you at one point wanted to be a police officer. I know that you, maybe not a fan of a, the second amendment, but you certainly believe in the second amendment. I know that I'm not that person. 
you know, I know that I'm, you know, I, my earliest memory is very much shaped by the LAPD, Compton, California. And I've always kind of looked at police like less like the heroes than most people get to, you know? Now I see movies and I live in this country and I recognize that police for better or worse have their place in society, but the way policing is done day to day, um, there's a lot of room for improvement. And some of the ideas that I believe in perhaps are a bit more radical than some folks taste. And perhaps they're not as radical as some folks would like. Um, but this show is not for me to get my ideas off. This show is for all of us, our listeners, you, me, and our guests to discuss what's happening. And perhaps in the midst of our discussions, we're able to flesh out a path forward where we're less angry, we're less afraid and so forth. Right. But I will say that policing, especially if you are allowed to carry a weapon whose only purpose is to end a life. You know, all the police in this country have that. If the, the only purpose of that gun is to end a life, that's why they built it. That's why they designed it. That's why you're carrying it. Um, that there is zero room for error. That that should be the first and foremost and last and only requirement. There's zero room for error when it comes to that. Um, and this ready fire aim mentality. Of, of these police officers, all of a sudden, everybody's afraid. And these people want to have the, 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 the hero narrative as well, or people want to give them the hero narrative. You know, who knows? You know, I'm not going to speak for everyone, but I don't think that those two are compatible because if you're a hero, to me, bravery is um, the first thing that comes to mind. You know, there's a story that we didn't get to talk about where this was in California and, um, uh, a person was having a mental health crisis. I believe this person was white. Um, you know, whatever the case was, and he had some people call the police to help. You know, and as far as I know, I didn't read all the details, but, you know, in my mind, this is what happened. Again, this is in my mind. I don't have the details, but these people are calling the police saying, hey, there's a problem with someone. This is the problem. And we need help with it. There's no other numbers I can call, but I can't do this alone. Right. Um, and then the police show up. One officer shoots another officer. And then the guy's dog gets shot. The guy who's having the mental health uh, crisis, his dog gets shot. And then you take a step back and you look at it and you say, why did we call these guys in the first place? These are the heroes. They come and shoot each other <laughs> on accident. And then the dog gets shot. This guy, you know, and I know people who you know, sometimes they, they connect with animals a little bit easier than they connect with people. Um, some people, they don't fit into society the same way as other folks do. And it, it's just such a heartbreaking story. And it's a sad story. And I'm sure the police would agree that that's a sad story and not all encounters in that way. And that's, that's a fair thing to say. But this violent approach to dealing with almost everything feels at least 90% of the time unfounded. There's another video that we didn't get to talk about where this was in uh, Mesa, Arizona. And, and from the video, from the vantage point that we see in the video, there's a man with his hands in the air and he puts his hands on the roof of the car and 
you know, he ends up getting shot. And I, I read a little bit more about the story. I forget his name and he deserves that. And I'm so sorry, but I, I, didn't, I didn't expect to go in this direction and my notes aren't here with his name on it, but I, I, I'll come back. I'll make it right. In any event, um, I believe that based on the, na- the way I remember his name, he was a uh, Hispanic uh, man. But, uh, you know, the police shoot him and, and their story is that he reached into his waistband. Um, not that he presented a weapon, not that anything, but he reached into his waistband and they were under the impression that he had a weapon. And so they shot and he died. And again, from the bandage point, it looks like his hands are on the roof of the car and that that was not happening, you know. Um, and I don't know, we've learned our lesson on this show to not, you know, say too much before we can say it. But I can say that the lack of restraint in those instances, when we, when we compare them to instances like what happened in Kenosha and with Dylan Roof when he shot up the church, you know, and things like that, where the police have an infinite amount of restraint. You know, these are people with weapons (laughs) actively (laughs) shooting, you know, there's nothing, you know, and so this story the one we're talking about with Brady Mystic, um, the deaf man in Colorado Springs, the violence that they feel is necessary to get a hold of the situation, you know, um, it feels like we're they're just bullies. Oh, I want I want to ask you a question before you move on, Rams. Please, are the police creating bullies? Or are bullies actively trying to become police? That's an excellent question, Q. Right? Like, are, are bullies seeing that, like, yo, I can go get it off if I do that? Or are normal people being turned into bullies by police academy, I mean, by police agencies? I think I have an, a theory. Of course, the answer is both. You know, there's some people with that they're they're bullies in their home life they abuse their wives they you know that's just who they are they're bigger they're strong they think that that's how they should live their life i wouldn't take that away from anyone but i think that the greater number is the police creates bullies and we know this when we look at the human psychology behind the stanford experiments right so the stanford experiments for those who don't know is um, please look it up too, Google it and just learn about it. It's really interesting. But basically some students from Stanford enrolled in a, in a study and then half of the students randomly were selected to be prisoners and half were selected randomly to be the prison guards. Um, and they all knew who each other w- were. They, they all knew in the real world, we're all the same people. You know, we all go to the same schools. We have the same you know, issue, whatever. But in this study, um, people's behavior started to change, particularly the guards. You know, they had, for all intents and purposes, absolute power to punish, to, you know, whatever, all the, the students who were the imprisoned, quote unquote. And the study actually had to be terminated because of the amount of abuse that was taking place. Um, and you know, with absolute, uh, absolute power, uh, corrupts absolutely. I think that's how the saying goes. And 
you know, people talk about training and there's been training and training and training for decades, more training, better training, you know, even, even black folks sometimes, uh, you know, we parrot that, oh, well, better training will, you know, and some of the stories I've read this week, I've, I've seen that a couple of times. And, you know, training, new theory, whatever the case is, um, that's all well and good, but we've seen that it's not nearly as effective as it needs to be. Uh, certainly, if we have to have zero mistakes, if you're carrying a murder weapon on your person and you're able to, loop, to end the life of a human being and not be held accountable if there's a mistake involved, if, if you make poor judgment, right? Um, but I think that when we examine not just the training, but the, the mentality and the culture of policing, that good old boys network that exists in policing, that blue wall of silence that exists in policing, um, we start to realize that policing, is, it's almost like a gang. It's like an us versus them, not a, hey, you know what? The people are very upset with us for making these mistakes. Let's figure out how to make less mistakes. Instead, they tend to insulate themselves even further. And the folks that mostly benefit from policing in this country are very easy to convince that, you know, policing serves your interests. So help us and support us and wave this flag with a blue stripe on it. Um, and don't you dare hold us accountable for anything. Exactly. You know, there was don't a, another see how dangerous our job is. Yeah. And there's another story. I'm glad you mentioned that. There's another story we didn't get to talk about. Um, and, you know, on the right, there's this narrative that George Floyd should not be made into a hero because he had a criminal past. And there was an unveiling of George Floyd's statue, I believe, is in New York City. Um, yes, sir. And a couple of days after that, someone threw paint on it, right? Um, to deface the statue. And of course, people were immediately out there cleaning up the paint, whatever, because it ex that's what exists. George Floyd should not be made into a hero, right? But then in Texas, this might have been, you know, a handful of days ago, maybe a week ago, um, there, there's this motion that's been approved to exonerate um, George Floyd from the crimes that he committed after another investigation of what actually went on. You know, he's not the criminal that folks made him out to be. He's a normal person living a normal life. Um, and in the same way that Emmett Till, you know, history remembers him as, you know, one of our heroes or one of the great names that we remember, you know, he lived 14 years. He didn't do great things. His biggest contribution to African-American history is just dying, getting dragged behind a truck and thrown in a river. You yeah, know? not just not just dying, but being brutally murdered. Sure, sure. But that contribution is not nothing. He paid for the advancement of black people and the narrative of equality uh, and equity in this country. He paid for that with his life. And we all have benefited from it. Us today, right now. And the same is true with George Floyd. And if the way that we keep those names, the, the way that we ensure that those lives weren't 
lost for no reason is to, you know, have these statues and these monuments, then that's our way of, you know, preserving that. Now, I do want to skip to this, uh, to the bottom here, because we don't have a whole lot of time left, but um, back to Brady Mystic. Um, he is, uh, he does have a lawsuit. Um, his attorney argues that, you know, the officer caused his own injuries, um, accused the police of trying to use the injury to cover up their own mishandling of the rest. Um, as we know, more than half of police killings are mislabeled. That's facts. That's from the New York Times. Um, later, they found prop money in his wallet and they tried to book him on possession of forged currency, you know, the play money you can buy. They tried to book him on that. Um, and then, of course, those charges were dismissed as well. And, um, you know, here's a quote from uh, the guy who says, when I got pulled over, I tried to come because the light was in my face and it scared me. He said in sign language on the footage, I couldn't see and I didn't like that. And I was frustrated. I came over to see what was going on. To me, I thought it was someone else. I didn't know I was the one. And with that, we'll take a pause for the cause. And now, proper propaganda. Watch it. Pull my mic back. You like that? Journalists with journalists, too. We can strike back. Hardcore reporters with orders from headquarters. Behind enemy lines, sidestepping the borders. If you're just tuning in to Civic Cipher, I'm your host, Ramses John. They call me Q-Board, and yes, people. That is a variation of my actual given name. Yes, indeed. Um, and we still got a lot in store for you for the show today, um, not the least of which is the way kids develop their views on race when they're young um, and how schools are responding and should continue to respond. Also, we are going to discuss our way black history fact. Um, we have three of the five ways that prisoners were used for profit throughout U.S. history. Um, so we're going to take a look at that as well. And, and uh, still till this day. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and so I can't wait to to get your thoughts on those because I want to read them and get your response. Uh, you usually have like a lot, a lot of insightful stuff when it comes to that. Um, but first, what we're going to do is uh, discuss how to become a better ally. This is our Baba segment. Um, so for those that listen to the first part of the show, um, you know, we discussed the way police policing is oftentimes a ready fire aim scenario. The police show up and then they'll shoot before they even know what's going on. Um, and then this is able to happen over and over again because, you know, police officers are able to say they fear for their lives. Right. So. What I, I found this on Twitter, and I thought this was worth mentioning. I'm going to read this to you. If you witness a police interaction, especially with a person of color, film, and here's the important part, narrate loudly. Okay, got your camera out. Police are interacting with someone. This is how you can be a friend to this person. He is cooperating. His hands are empty. He is doing what he is told to do. He is holding still. His hands are empty. He is not being threatening. He has put his hands behind his head as asked. He is not resisting. And what it does is it lets the cops know what the narrative of the eyewitness is going to be. Um, and, you know, if you say things like his hands are empty, um, the 
the police should not become violent, even if it turned out that this person getting arrested had a weapon on his or her person, which, as we know in this country, you have a right to have a weapon on your person. You know, you have a right to have a gun on your person. Um, Depends on who you are. Well, yes, but, you know, I'm talking about the Constitution. And so if you're filming and narrating at the same time, um, it helps the officers to know exactly what is being witnessed and to some degree i believe it holds them a bit more accountable um in that moment and that might just make the difference and so i believe that's a great way to become a better ally with that said how are your kids q i'm so glad you asked me that so my Son is telling me he misses me every day and I can see it in his eyes that he understands what he's saying. Mm -hmm. My daughter realizes that a camera is being pointed at her when we're on FaceTime or when I'm talking to their mom and she just simply says cheese with the largest smile available to a human being. So um, my kids are good. They miss their dad. Their dad misses them. I love that. How old are your babies? My son is four as of September 20. My daughter will be two Christmas Day. Wonderful. Um, and I've talked about on the show before, you know, I have two sons. One is 15. He'll be 16 soon. And then I have a seven-year-old as well. You know, and I've had them both since they were babies, of course. Um. And I thought this was important because we need to talk about race with respect to kids. Um, and for the most part, when we talk about race, we talk to folks who can understand what race is, that people look different, things like this. But we don't really get into how early ideas can develop in children. So. Um, this, uh, I got a lot of this research done. I uh, used an article from USA Today. Um, over the past few months, schools have come under scrutiny over how they teach students about race and racism. Um, a recent USA Today Ipsos poll found most parents believe children should learn about the ongoing effects of slavery and racism in U.S. society, but slightly less than half support the teaching of critical race theory. And I, I, I didn't know that. I, I figured that the majority of people would support it, but it says slightly less than half, um, which doesn't necessarily mean slightly more than half are opposed to it. You know, there's usually a no opinion <laughs> uh, somewhere in there, but I just didn't know that the numbers were that close. And there, there actually used to be a no opinion sector almost everything is polarizing now. Like, sure. you know what I'm saying? Like people are very, very strong on one side or the other, even on things they have no idea about. We've done a very, very good job of dividing ourselves on both very critical, important and in very small trivial things. So sure. there's, sure. there's less people that will honestly say, I don't know now than people who are clueless, but still very passionately and vehemently argue a point of view, even if they don't really have a take or a stance on it. Absolutely. Um, 
But I think that, you know, credit where it's due, not, not the happy type of credit, positive credit, but the right, the right wing media is very, very good at making boogeymen out of really necessary and helpful things. Anything that is, doesn't maintain the status quo, anything that erodes white supremacy to any degree is challenged on all fronts. Critical yes, race sir. theory, critical race theory. This is, this is, this is controversial. And, and they're so successful at scaring people with it. It's a teaching that takes place in school. This isn't a virus. This isn't, this, nothing like that. This is, hey, we're going to teach our kids more stuff. They might not know this, so let's teach them that too. And there are people opposed to children learning because of how right-wing media um, is able to do this. They can do this with climate change. They can do, they can do this with anything. It's, it's the wildest thing. They get a couple of people who go against the flow um, you know, that challenge what popular conventional wisdom is. I'm surprised they don't have more flat earthers on, you know, just because it's so fringe. But, you know, I digress. Um, you know, slightly less than half support the teaching of critical race theory um, in U.S. society. Um, in that same USA Today slash Ipsos poll, parents were most likely to say children should start learning about racism in kindergarten, which is the youngest age group they could select. Children will be exposed to racism regardless of whether they learn about it in the classroom, experts say. So um, that is one sort of silver lining there is that folks, for the most part, will say that, yes, we need to teach children what race is and that racism is bad at a very young age, right? Um, perhaps folks have come to the realization that if they don't teach their children, then perhaps other children might teach them, you know, and other folks' opinions might indoctrinate their kids, you know what I mean? And so let's teach our kids to be good people so that, you know, Billy Bob's dad's ideas that he taught to his five-year-old don't make their way into my five-year-old's head, you know, whatever. Here's a super interesting take, Rams. What's that? It's not that they don't want their kids to be taught that racism is bad. Because even racist people think racism is bad. That's why they're insulted when you call them racist. So it's their children learning that the country that they love and maybe even their own parents are racist. That's the fear. Like, man, my parents think and behave and subscribe to that way of thinking and that way of life. And wow, America the Great and America the Beautiful was founded on, built upon, and still thrives on the subservient, lesser than human treatment and viewpoint of people of color. And the idea, like you said, is it's, it's the idea of anything that pokes away at white supremacy and that shines a light on the white supremacy in this country that's cloaked in that beautiful flag. 
that's the pushback. It's not don't teach our kids that racism is bad. We agree that racism is, is bad. That's why we aren't racist. <laughs> don't shine a light on how racist we really are. And don't you dare imply that this country's foundation has any roots whatsoever in racism or white supremacy. Well, there's another thing that, I mean, in the, in the more uh, extreme viewpoints of this, um, well, I guess the most extreme is to not teach anything. But, you know, there is, in order to teach American history, you do have to deal with race. You just have to. There's no way around that one. That's like right in the middle of the street you're going down, right? Um, but, you know, they'll try to change the narrative. You know, workers were brought from Africa, you know, instead of slaves, you know, they'll, you know, re rewrite the story. And what a disadvantage these children would be at, you know, for having learned things in a whitewashed way so that they could love the country more. I don't like people, and I might get in trouble for saying this, but people that love this country so much. I think they're, they're missed that they have to be missing something, you know, because it's, it's a country you, I'm sure you can love it in the same way that you love breathing air, you know? Um, but it's, it's there, you know, and, and really, if you were really, if love is the word that, that comes to mind, I'm all for that. I love the word love, but to look at it like it's finished, it's perfect. There's no problems with it. It's either extremely self-centered view that you have of the country where it's perfect for you, you know, or it ignores the reality. It's delusional, you know, and for those people that it just has to be the right thing, listen, it makes me slightly uncomfortable and I don't want my children to go through this and I don't want anyone to call me racist and, you know, listen, we all have to grow. We all have to learn. I'm a man. And you know what I have to do all the time? I have to listen to women and not say anything. That is a challenge. That is a current challenge that I'm dealing with. You know, I, for some reason, think that I can talk not just with women, but with men, you know, all the time. But when it comes to women lately, as I've been reading and learning how to be a better man and a better brother to my sisters that I share this planet with, I recognize that women oftentimes don't feel heard in having a conversation with men. And even if I'm not the reason for that, I do have an opportunity to perhaps help write a different story and so i'll 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 own it i'll take it i'm going to listen you know i'm not going to offer any advice i'm not going to unless you ask for it you know and i don't look at the world like oh I, this makes me slightly uncomfortable i'm accustomed to saying everything that comes into my brain nope you need something and i'm able to give it to you i got you let's go you know uh james brown said this is a man's world and if i got to bring a little bit more balance to the universe by listening I don't think that's a tall order. Now, that's just me personally, but I think that you could find a parallel in there if you are a kind and decent human being who's committed to, you know, um, an equitable experience for all of us to share this planet. And to be fair, you know, as we stated, there's a good amount of people who have a, a similar view 
Um, but it's just so interesting. Now, I do want to move on because um, here we go. At birth, research shows babies look equally at faces of all races, but they quickly begin to note physical differences in people, according to Allen, who is uh, Rosemary Allen. Sorry, I, I missed that part. She's a professor of early childhood education at the Metropolitan State University of Denver. Um, so children begin to quickly notice physical differences in people within a few months uh, to pay more attention to faces whose race matches that of their caregivers. By nine months, they can lose the ability to distinguish between faces of other races if they're not exposed to diversity. Absent such exposure, for example, a white baby can distinguish between the faces of her white caregivers, but not between those of black people. In other words, to babies that are not around black people, all black people look the same. But white people, it's not true. You know, and I'm sure that because we're dealing with babies, it's the opposite or the inverse of that is true as well. You know, um, and what we're talking about is a preference. We're talking about, you know, how you frame the world. This is not to suggest that racism is something that develops on its own, you know, in early childhood. But it is to suggest that exposure to different types of people in early childhood certainly allows for children to be more receptive to different types of people as they enter school and as they begin to formulate their opinions on the way the world works and their place in the world. Um, and again, a father of two sons, and you know, you're a father of a son and a daughter, one who is, your daughter is two years old. Um, I thought that was very interesting. And that's something that is not necessarily a challenge to white people, but to all people. You know, if this studies, if studies like this suggest that diversity enriches our lives, helps us to be more empathetic, to understand each other better, to move more in sync with each other, as opposed to, you know, on opposite ends of the spectrum, which is, you know, as you mentioned, is really what's been happening a lot lately in this country. Um, then early and frequent exposure to other types of people is absolutely helpful. But I would take it a step further, you know, because, you know, we're, we've been talking about critical race theory in schools. I would go so far as to say that that type of exposure, not just to people, but to information about who are these people, where do they come from, where do their problems come from? What are the things that make them happy? What are the things that make them afraid? We, we're going to share this planet. We're going to share this country. Let me try to make sure that I understand as much as I can about who I'm sharing this country with. I need to learn about me, but let me learn about these people too. You know, I, when I was in school, I learned about all kinds of stuff. You know, I went to school and then went back and then went back. So, that thirst for knowledge was, I mean, I, I wouldn't say too much about trigonometry classes and, you know, econ and finance, you know, I was a business major, but um, there's a lot to be said about learning about different people. There's a lot to be said about learning things that you otherwise wouldn't know. And again, this attack on critical race theory, um, I think that this study suggests above all else 
that we need to celebrate and learn about each other's differences in schools. Now, I'm going to say this last thing, and I want to get your thoughts. Um, by the time they're two years old, many children uh, demonstrate a strong preference for their own race. And by three, they begin to categorize people based on their race. It's during these early experiences that implicit biases, preconceived, often negative perceptions about people who are different, begin to entrench themselves in children's minds. What do you think about that? As not just a father, not just a father of black children, but like you, a father of mixed children, I often ask myself, my friends like you, my mother, and even people in the, the scholastic and academic world, in the psychology and sociology world, how and when do we have these conversations with our children? Because not only are my children growing up in a country where they, where they will have neighbors and classmates and people that they come into contact with that are racist, that's just a fact, but they will at some point in their lives, maybe even having a hard, have a hard time fitting into some type of sub social group because they don't fully belong to one or the other. Yeah. Now my children uh, like yours are black and Hispanic. And the last five years, let's just say to be black and Hispanic in this country. Whoa. Yeah. I, I think our, our former president, campaigned on his hatred and disdain for people from s-hole countries he called them and for the legion of people marching north from south of our borders to rape and pillage knowing that there are people tens of millions of people that subscribe to that thought and having to raise children in a country where people think like that, but want to pretend that they don't. And then I think they think protect our children from these truths. It's sometimes scary. It's sometimes frustrating. Uh, similar to what you said, I'm an adult and I still have so much to learn. To deny my children the opportunity to, or the ability to learn about these things that are, more important here than probably anywhere else on earth yeah. would be malpractice as a parent. So I don't pretend to know the right way. And I think I have to make sure I remind our listeners, I do not pretend to be an expert on any of the things that we talk about. I am, however, an expert on how they make me feel. And that's what you guys listen to when you hear me on this show, I'm just telling you how these things make me feel. And unfortunately, a lot of, a lot of the times it's not very hopeful and it's not very happy. Well, one thing People that I being, do, go ahead. go ahead, bro. Go ahead. Well, one thing that I do love about at least what you offer is 
you know, there's not a lot of people who are really as good at conveying the full emotional weight in a response, verbalizing that. And, you know, that's really something that is largely absent from, we'll call it fact-based, you know, news reports in this, you know, in these spaces. Um, there needs to be a human response to it. And um, so I, I think it's wonderful. Now, I do want to say this. Um, for our brothers and sisters who have less melanin, there's a lot that you can do with this. Obviously, when it comes to children, you know, have your children around different types of people. You know, uh, black children, brown children, you know, we, our children grow up with dolls and watching TV and, the, you know, there's white, there's white faces are, are plentiful growing up. Um, but the opposite might not be true. And so, you know, there's something that you can do there. Another thing is make sure to take this conversation and have it in your home, have it with your parents, have it with people. Um, let's learn about each other. I need, I need to, I, you know, you teach people how to love you, you know? So also be willing to talk, you know, be willing to share. Um, I think that'll go a long way. Um, and I want to leave you with a, a quote from um, Rosemary Allen, the, the author of this study. She says, uh, in order to break the trend, we have to make sure that diversity is well presented in the lives of our children. Um, so, yeah. Um, and moving on. It is time for us to get into our way black history fact. As I mentioned to you, um, there's a few things that I wanted to talk about with this and get your, you know, response to it. Um, of course, our way black history fact is when we look back in the time and we discuss something you may not have known, or we do a little bit deeper dive into something that you might have heard of. Um, but, you know, a lot of black history is, you know, very painful. Um, a lot of the realities of our, you know, time in this country is very um, hurtful. And that trauma, you know, there are people who say that that trauma is kind of <laughs> is woven into our DNA. You know, uh, it's, it's impacted, you know, our, our responses and how we, how we feel about things and how we go about dealing with things. And sometimes we're not able to outreason these things but um here's another such um instance of some traumatic events that that happened in this country um for black people and again i'm not saying this to beat up on anyone or to play up the past for any reason other than to say it helps for us to understand because you know one domino knocks over the next domino over the next over the next over the next and then if you only look at what happened at the end, you're not getting the full picture, you know. So um, this comes from PBS.org. Five ways prisoners were used for profit throughout U.S. history. Um, I'm going to be going through numbers three through five because they're the most relevant. And based on time, that's what we have. So number three, selling children into slavery. Uh, before the Civil War, most prisoners in the South were white. 
the punishment of enslaved African Americans was generally left up to their owners. Louisiana, however, did imprison enslaved people for serious crimes, generally involving acts of rebellion against the slave system. A number of these imprisoned slaves were women. Penitentiary records show a number of women imprisoned for assaulting a white. Arson or attempting to poison someone, most likely their enslavers. Some of these female prisoners became pregnant, either by fellow inmates or prison officials. In 1848, state legislatures passed a law declaring that all children born in the penitentiary to African Americans serving life sentences would become property of the state. The women would raise the children inside the prison until the age of 10, at which point they would be auctioned on the courthouse steps. Many of the buyers were prison officials, including heads of the companies that ran the penitentiary. The proceeds were used to fund schools for white children. That is directly from PBS.org. Um, quick thought. What do you think? I was talking to someone about Juneteenth recently. Mm-hmm. And how profound the idea is that the Juneteenth celebration marks a moment in history where the people who found out that they were free. I don't even know how to properly articulate this. The people that found out that they were free had already been free when they found out. I don't know how to say that and have it hit the way that I wanted to. <laughs> I know what you mean. <laughs> but when the news was delivered to them that they were free, they had already been free and they just didn't know it. Yeah. But to celebrate in that moment where nothing was done to assure you any type of foot forward after that point is just as scary. No land, no money, no direction, no prospects. You know what I mean? So I'm re- we're, we're reading over this and these are things that we've kind of known already. And it's just like, not only was there this gross, not only has there always been this gross undertaking, abuse, uh, just throwing away complete humane disregard of our people. But even in war, women or ch- women and children are supposed to be treated better. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. they're they're women and children are off limits, even yeah. in war. Except when, when it came to good old America and its abduction, enslavement, and I want to say if they could have had it their way attempted genocide of black people, there was no low they wouldn't go to. Well, watch this. So I'll read these next two together um, and hopefully we'll get a quick thought from you before we close. But um, number four is replacing enslaved people with convicts. Um, After the Civil War, the former owners of enslaved people looked for ways to continue using forced labor. With Southern economies devastated by the war, businessmen convinced states to lease them their prisoners. Convicts dug levees, laid railroad tracks, picked cotton, and mined coal for private companies and planters. The system known as convict leasing was profitable 
not only for the lessees, but for the states themselves, which typically demanded a cut of the profits. Tennessee once made 10% of its state budget from convict leasing. Um, there was simply no incentive for lessees to avoid working people to death. In many ways, the wow. system was more brutal than slavery. The annual convict death rates ranged from 16 to 25%, a mortality rate that would rival the Soviet gulags to come. In 1870, Alabama prison officials reported more than 40% of their convicts had died in their mining camps. Um, and then the next one, squeezing every dollar out of prisoners. Around the end of the 19th century, states became jealous of the profits that lessees were making from their convicts. In Texas, a former slaveholder and prison superintendent began an experiment, quote unquote. The state bought two plantations of its own to work inmates that were not fit enough to hire out as first class labor. As a business venture, it was a success. In just over a decade, the state was making around $1.25 million in today's dollars from its plantations, exceeding its income from the convict lease system. By 1928, the state of Texas would be running 12 plantations. States throughout the South stopped hiring out their convicts to private businessmen and ran their own plantations, keeping all the profits. To squeeze every dollar they could from their prisoners, some states instituted a trustee guard system using inmates rather than paid guards to watch over their prisons. Typically, prisoners convicted of the most brutal acts were appointed to the job because of their willingness to shoot others. If a trustee guard shot an inmate assumed to be escaping, he was granted an immediate parole. Like slave drivers before the emancipation, certain prisoners were chosen to whip inmates in the fields. Arkansas allowed the practice until 1967. Shortly after whipping was abolished, its prison plantation stopped turning a profit and subsequently closed. And unfortunately, there's no real time for a reaction there, but I can imagine what yours might be. So you got something quick. 10 seconds. January 31st, 1865, the 13th Amendment of the United States abolished slavery and involuntary servitude, except as punishment for a crime. How about that? I do not think that has been re-amended to date. Exactly. And we're going to have to leave it right there. So once again, thank you for tuning in to Civic Cipher. I'm your host, Ramses Ja. As you know, they call me Q Ward. Yes, indeed. Uh, be sure to hit the website, civiccypher.com. Download this and any previous episodes. Um, check us out on all social media at Civic Cipher. And be uh, sure to make a donation. It really helps the show grow. And we've been growing with your support. Until next week, y'all. Peace. From headquarters behind enemy lines, sidestepping the borders. With press passes, we bring it to you as it happens. The streets love my crew for music and rapping. Street commander slash beat expander.